Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open up with me, if you don't mind, to 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28. We'll be looking at the whole chapter down into verse 25, but we're only going to be reading verses 3 through 14 as we get the sermon going here. So 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 3 through 14. And let me just say how grateful I am for all the volunteers who make so many things happen here on a given week. there You see a lot of us that are easy to see, but I want you to think about just on a Sunday like today, all the hard work that goes into, think about how to even just set the stage up, uh, how to get children ready to lead us in worship in these ways, to do hand chimes, to do singing. Um, you think about our deacons distributing the Lord's Supper, you see them, but we also have a Lord's Supper team committee who helps prepare the Lord's Supper for us, the elements, and then add to that all the different things that are going on tech-wise in the building and everything else. There's lots going on, lots of people serving, and we would not have a church if it wasn't for the people of God being willing to serve. So thank you to each of you, those who are seen and unseen uh, in these in these moments. Well, if you have your Bibles open there, why don't you go and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning in verse 3, now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. And the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by prophets. And then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why, you, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you please open our hearts and minds today to receive your word. And Father, I pray we would be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Um, I think I would start with a wedge salad. 
a good one, a good wedge salad, a big one. Then I think I would go with a bowl of gumbo. You got to have a salad course and a soup course. Barbecue ribs, why not? French fries, maybe some turnip greens. I don't know. Can't quite make up my mind on the theme here. Macaroni and cheese, yeast rolls. You got to have dessert if you're going to do this. Banana pudding and peanut butter cake for dessert, both of them. And I want some good coffee uh, to go with the dessert. Probably going to have a Diet Coke uh, with the dinner as well. <laughs> right. Almost none of us will know it's coming, but most of us probably have nonetheless thought about what our last meal might be. Maybe you haven't, maybe you have. We ask ourselves this question sometimes, or ask friends this question, what would your last meal be? And I've never heard, and I tried to authentically answer the question here, I've never heard an answer that when you put it all together didn't maybe seem a little bit strange, didn't quite make sense. You see, it's a cultural fascination we have in part because of the right that has historically been granted to death row inmates before their execution. Historically, they've been granted a last meal. They can eat whatever they want. In fact, our fascination with this process runs so deep that a photographer named Henry Hargraves has recreated and photographed the last meals of many death row inmates. And he titles this series of pictures, not the actual last meals, but he hears what they ordered and he and a chef put these things together and have published this series of photographs. He, he titled this series of photographs, No Seconds. No Seconds. Displaying the bleak reality of death sentences. And this week I've looked at some of those pictures and it is sort of eerie to consider some of the different things that people eat as their last meal. In this passage, chapter 28 of 1 Samuel, if you read to the end, you encounter Saul's last meal. Alienated from God, betraying his people, violating his own law and of course vis-a-vis -vis the law of God, and eating his last supper that's been cooked by and is in the house of a witch. As Shakespeare's witches said of Macbeth, something wicked this way comes. Uh, throughout this book, we've witnessed not only Saul's seemingly meteoric rise, his, his ascension from humble beginnings, but for most of this book, we've encountered Saul's descent. Using God for his own ends, rejecting God's word, he himself being rejected by God, and then warring and raging against God's plans and purposes, raging against David, raging against the priests, raging against God himself, and ultimately what Saul is really raging at, what Saul is really doing is the opposite of what the psalmist tells us to do in verse 2, I mean in Psalm 2, which is the psalmist tells us we ought to kiss the sun that we ought not to rage against the Lord and against His anointed. And yet that's precisely what the King of Israel is doing. Ultimately, not only is he raging against God, he is raging against his Christ. For the plan and purpose of God in the life of David and in the days of Saul was a plan to bring about, God is working to bring about His Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, David's greater Son. This is what Herod hated. This is what so many have hated. This is what Pharaoh hated. This is what the book of Revelation shows us that the dragon hates as he stands poised, waiting to gobble up the seed of the woman in the Scriptures in Revelation. 
Here we see the same thing is true of Saul raging against the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah of God. This morning I want to show you something. From this text of Scripture, I want to show you the way that thinking and living in a Christless way brings about not only misery, but in fact, wickedness. It's the surest way to sinfulness, and it's the surest way to a bleak and hopeless future. As Christians in the age we live in, we can see so much of a fuller picture, but nonetheless, the same temptation to ask abstract wisdom and religion in our very own lives from God's plan and purpose and His anointed one remains the same for us today as it did for Saul. We are all tempted to do these things. And so this morning, I want to show you three truths that I hope will help you embrace Christ in every facet of your life. Three warnings, that is against Christlessness in our hearts and in our lives. Here's the first point I want you to see this morning. The first point is this. Beware Christless wisdom. Beware Christless wisdom. As verse 3 opens, we recognize Saul is in a tough spot. Verse 4, we see that the Philistines have assembled and they've come and they've encamped at a place that is far too close for comfort. They're getting closer and closer in. It's one of the things as 1 Samuel develops, you can almost feel the Philistines as you read the different geographical points where they are. You can feel them encroaching closer and closer. You can feel them gaining ground. You can feel the pincher maneuver coming in on you. You can feel the pressure that Saul is under. Remember, Saul saw himself as hired by the people to fight their battles. And as as has become customary and typical with Saul, he sees the army and he was afraid, the Bible says in verse 5. His heart trembled greatly within him. He's in a tough spot, but it's even worse than that. Not only is the army near again, not only is he afraid again, not only is he trembling instead of going out and being ready to fight, being ready to lead the armor, armies. Instead, what we see is there's, there's another problem. Things are worse. Saul seeks to inquire of the Lord, but God didn't answer in any of the licit ways that God has given the king to seek his counsel. He did not answer by dreams. He did not answer by Urim, which is a way of casting lots that was able to be done through priests at different times in the Bible. He didn't answer answer by prophets. There's no way that God is speaking to Saul to tell him what to do. And there's another problem that the author highlights. Saul and Israel, in fact, have lost their spiritual backbone. Whenever things were very bad, you could always count on Samuel to bring a word from the Lord. You can remember earlier in this book, the Bible says in the days of Eli the priest, before Samuel came on the scene, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And then Samuel had come on the scene and was able to speak on behalf of the Lord and help lead and judge in Israel. And yet now that he's died, Saul is at a place where it is absolute, total radio silence from the Lord. He's in a tough spot and he's desperate for wisdom from God. And he makes a command to his servants. Notice what the Bible says in verse 7. Seek out for me a woman who is a medium. That is someone who can consult with the dead. That I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Now I hope you didn't miss it in verse 3. Something that was said here. A little piece of information the author wants us to know. 
saw the end of verse 3, and Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Nonetheless, Saul wants to go see this woman at Endor. Saul wants to go and, and find this wisdom that's not from God, but a wisdom nonetheless. He wants help. He needs help. And so what he does is he divests himself of anything that might signify who he really is. Remember, throughout this book, the robes and other things are symbols of his kingship. So anything that would make him look like a king, he takes off. Interestingly enough, he recognizes Samuel later by the robe that he's wearing. Another way I think the author is weaving this picture of Saul having the kingship ripped from him. You'll remember it was Saul, Samuel's robe that was torn and the first time God had told Saul that the kingdom was being ripped from him. In his disguise, he comes to the woman in the cover of night with his sunglasses and trench coat on and he asks her to summon up the spirit of someone dead for him. And so rightfully, this woman is afraid, though she may be uh, running a sort of black market uh, medium service here. She's nonetheless afraid that someone new has come to be a customer. She fears that he may be perhaps some sort of double agent and reminds him of what Saul had done. Do you feel the irony here? She's telling Saul what has put her out of business. Saul promises her that she will not be punished, stacking up his hypocrisy, pouring accelerant on his hypocrisy. Upon his demand, she summons Samuel for him. That's who he wants to see. And I want you to notice the scene in verse 12. If it wasn't so sad, it might be funny. Notice what the Bible says in verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, now remember, this is what she does for a living, supposedly, right? Is call up and conjure up the spirits of the dead. But when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. She's afraid and surprised when she sees him. Now, one of the things that is frustrating about the Bible, but probably good for us, is it doesn't always scratch us where we itch, right? We all sort of want to know, is this really Samuel? My short answer is, I think so. I don't think there's anything in the text that makes us think that it would be, wouldn't be. But the question then becomes, is something like being a medium or contacting the dead something that's possible? Is it something that's done? The Bible doesn't quite tell us whether or not that's the case. Certainly the seeking of that is the case. So I don't know the people who claim to contact the dead. It's, it's never so clear as someone just showing up in the crystal ball, though, even if you research occultic practices and things like that. In fact, just the very language that's used to describe necromancers and mediums here in the Old Testament, it's almost like onomatopoeia that reflects like scratching and little noises. So it's sort of almost like reading tea leaves. It's not quite as clear as you might think. That's why you need an expert to read what's going on. Nonetheless, what's happening here with Samuel having a vision, I mean, when this witch having a vision of Samuel coming up out of the ground, she says like a god or an angel, he's coming up out of the ground. It's an amazing thing to see. It frightens her. She's afraid. And immediately she knows this is not an ordinary customer. She knows this is Saul. This situation is out of the ordinary. It's almost funny to see the witch being the one who's afraid when the dead spirit shows up. He's wrapped in a robe and Saul knows it is his erstwhile friend, later his enemy, through his own making, Samuel. Uh, as we consider what's really happening here and as we consider 
what Saul is doing and whether or not this is uh, uh, something that validates this sort of practice. I don't think it is. Nonetheless, I think we have something to learn. I think we need to learn that pursuing God for our own ends in our own way will ultimately, ultimately lead us to seek out Christless wisdom. Seeking God for our own ends and in our own way will ultimately lead to us seeking out Christless wisdom. I, I want to encourage you folks. Do you see what Saul's doing? Uh, Saul is trying to end around God's ways. He's trying to end around God's means. And so the only thing he can come up with is to violate the law, to violate his own laws, to go against God in order to try to get wisdom from God. But God is not the type of person where you can have it your way. We are not able to just go do whatever we want with God. We must not go to anyone but God to learn about God. We must recognize that the world cannot tell us about God. Our own hearts cannot tell us about God. Religion cannot tell us about God. Conjured spirits or spirituality or tarot cards or astrology cannot tell us about God. If you go to bookstores these days, the, even just the self-help sections are filled up with New Age astrology. People are longing for spiritual wisdom. That's the world we live in. We can say we're as secular as we want to, but the spiritual remains. But we have to remember, and as believers, one of the most beautiful things we can provide the world is the reminder and the example that only God can tell us about God. And God has spoken to us about himself concerning his son and through his son. Sometimes I fear that we judge tarot cards and Ouija boards and all this evil, dark-sided stuff. But at the same time, we are willing to swallow what the world has to say about God and about religion and about spirituality, hook, line, and sinker. But the question becomes for all of us is why would we even want Christless wisdom? Why would we even desire that thing? Faith and repentance and grace and love are so much better than anything we can find outside God. Why would we go to anyone but Him to hear what we need to hear? Saul and his sin, his sin is why he wants to go somewhere else. Brothers and sisters, we must beware Christless wisdom. But second of all, we must beware Christless religion. We must beware of Christless religion. I want you to see something in verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I love this. Samuel seems to be enjoying rest in the Lord here. And Saul answers, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Now, I think sometimes we hold out hope that things will be different if we could just speak to the manager. And so here we have uh, Samuel, I mean Saul, summoning Samuel saying, if I can just appeal to him, maybe what God has said now, maybe, I don't know, dying will have calmed him down a little bit, you know? Maybe I can hear something else. But what God has said has not changed. From the grave, Samuel speaks and reiterates what God has already said. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Tomorrow, you and your sons, eerily, he says, tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. And so this apparition of Samuel speaks the truth again 
to Saul. Saul over and over again has practiced Christless religion. Christless religion that seeks to use God. Christless religion that sees God as a means to an end. Christless religion, my friends, believes that it can work around God's word. It believes it can work around God's commands. It believes it can work around God's ways. That is, Christless religion seeks to make God in our own image. I'll be the first to admit there are problems in the church today, in Christianity, in Christendom, so to speak. I'll be the first to admit there are challenges in the Bible. There are things that are challenging in the Scriptures. There are things that are hard to believe. There are things that are hard to live by in the Bible. But I cannot emphasize to you enough, my friends, how important it is to cling to Jesus and the truth of His Word. I'm against any form of religion. I think the Bible's against any form of religion that tries to do an end around around Jesus. Now, you might say, of course you're against these things. You're a Baptist preacher. That's what you're supposed to do. No, this is for your joy and for your good. Don't skip Jesus to try to get some form of religion that you like better. I'm against skirting around Jesus to the right through creating a legalism that he would not own, trying to go around the right side, get around Christ, to get around the gospel, to try to have a legalism and a self-righteousness that's propped up by our own good works, that's more focused on whether we believe what's right and whether we are right and whether we are correct and is really concerned about the very heart of God and repentance and faith. I'm against skirting around Jesus to the left by remaking him as a modern progressive and editing the things that he said and the things that the Bible says It makes him feel unsavory to us. I'm against both of those things. I'm against skirting around Jesus by picking and choosing, doing the sort of Piccadilly approach to our spirituality. We pick and choose what we like and we do not like, and we emphasize the things we do like over the things we do not like, rather than letting Jesus speak about himself to us through his word. My friends, all of these things are Christless religion. They go around Jesus, but Jesus is the one we must go through if we want to know God, if we want an authentic spirituality. We cannot be like Saul and try to go find things our way, to try to go find knowledge, to try to reject the things we don't like and only embrace the things we do, to go whichever direction it might take to hear what we want to hear. No, instead, my friends, we go through Christ and Christ alone. He is the door. He is the gate. There's no other way to the Father except through Him. One more warning. One last point. Not only do we beware Christless wisdom, not only do we beware Christless religion, but I can't emphasize this enough, beware a Christless future. Beware a Christless future future. The word of the Lord concerning his doom is confirmed to Saul. And in that moment there, before his men, before the witch, exposed, broken, sinful, Saul falls down flat on the ground, not in repentance, but in fear. Not fear of the Lord, but fear of the loss of everything he holds dear. He's without energy at this point. We don't know if he was fasting before he came to this medium. We don't know if the seriousness of the battle caused him not to eat like he had commanded his troops to do before in the episode with Jonathan and the honey, or if he's just so afraid he's lost his appetite. But at any level, he is famished and has lost all of his energy and is in the absolute nadir of his life, career, and ministry. 
There's nothing worse. And so the witch looks at him and has pity on him. This great king receives grace from a witch. She kills the fatted calf. It's veal for dinner tonight. This celebratory symbol to kill this fatted calf. She kneads and bakes bread and convinces Saul to eat a meal fit for a king. A celebratory feast. Look at this picture. The tall, handsome, victorious, promising king of Israel shorn of his royal attire, wearing a disguise that is now soiled by the dirt on the floor of the house of a witch, fearful, trembling, unrepentant, and eating his last meal in shame and ultimately a resignation to his fate. The author helps us see this when it talks about them leaving. Then they rose and went away. That night, he doesn't go to hide. He doesn't go stay here. He doesn't try to go seek solace anywhere else. He goes back knowing that his doom is sealed. And as they stepped out into the darkness outside the house of the witch, I'm sure it seemed bright compared to the night that had descended over the soul of this once promising king. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know something. You can kick and you can scream. And you can rage, and you can run, and you can rebel, and you can do everything you want to do to try to snuff out what you feel like your problems are, like Saul did seeking that partridge named David out in the mountains. If I could just snuff him out, things would be okay. If I could just do this, things would be okay. If I could just hear from Samuel, things would be okay. But there is no avoiding the reality that a future without Christ a future when you have not run to Jesus in repentance and faith, a Christless future is bleak and hopeless. You can run after pleasure. You can find worldly wisdom that will tell you how outdated and silly Christianity is. You can find someone who will say, yeah, I know that's what your chubby fundamentalist bow tie preacher thinks, but let me tell you what the Bible actually says. You can find someone who will tell you anything you want to hear. And you can do everything in your power to try to prove reality wrong. But facts are stubborn things. Brothers and sisters, I am not here because I want to control your behavior. I am not here because I want to be able to line a bunch of shiny, happy Baptists up and say, look at how good of a pastor I am. I am here because Jesus wants you by his grace to run from sin, to run from the devil, and to run into his open, loving arms. Do not walk out into the night when there is light to be had. Do not run to sin when righteousness is waiting for you in droves. Do not, my friends, run into hell when heaven's arms are open wide. Beware, beware, beware a Christless future. Every person in this room will one day Every single one of us will one day eat the meal for which there will be no seconds. Every one of us will one day slip off into an eternity 
we will slip off and face the living God. We will all eat the meal for which there will be no seconds. But Christ has invited you to a feast that will not end. There will be no death in all this holy mountain. He has prepared a sumptuous feast for all those who will come to Him. There's only one way to eat it. There's only one way to know Him. There's only one way to have a future in Christ. And that is by faith. And by faith, we will one day reach this festal gathering, this supper of the Lamb. By faith, we have a hope. By faith, we have a future. By faith, we have a world without end. By faith, we can see and know God's wisdom, by faith, we can live out our days before God, not having to cling to man-made religion, but knowing Jesus personally by grace through faith. Brothers and sisters, we can have a hope and a future by grace through faith. By grace through faith, would you follow Him today? I want to offer an invitation even now. If you've never trusted Jesus You trust Him right where you are. You come talk to me if you need someone to pray with. And this altar is open to you. But I would love today for you to turn from your sins and repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus. Second of all, you may be a believer. And you may say, I'm trying to go get to God every way, but the way He's appointed. I know what's right, but I just can't seem to make it click. Oh, would you turn to Jesus by grace through faith today and recognize that if you persist in your sin, that there is no joy on the other side. Turn to Jesus by faith. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. Ma'am, what a joy it would be for me today to talk to you about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, Let me invite you to come. Let's pray together.